Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Boer War, which originally aired as one episode on the 5th of September, 2012. Welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Boer War, part two. Last time we examined the creeping presence of Britain in South Africa, as well as the imperial ambitions of the Europeans, as they sought to carve up Africa amongst themselves. In this scramble for Africa, People like the Boers were caught in the middle. After years of resistance, their way of life had come under threat by the British ambition to consolidate its South African holdings under one diverse state, but above all the Boer way was endangered because of the vast influx of immigrants seeking fortune amidst the news that gold had been discovered. In an attempt to use this chaotic and troubling situation to its advantage, The British colonial official, acting on his own initiative, but with London's unfortunate but tacit blessing, Leander Starr Jameson, organised a scheme whereby he and a party of his men would swoop into the Transvaal and manipulate the situation to Britain's advantage, making use of the tensions between the Boers and the immigrant settlers, or Oitlanders. As Jameson soon discovered, though, such a scheme was easier to plan than execute. I will now take you to December... 1895. National injustice is the surest road to national downfall. William Gladstone. Despite their semi-official status as citizens and the difficult time they were having of it in the Transvaal, 
the representatives of the Oitlanders in Johannesburg were hesitant to act against their Boer masters, and the force which Jemison gathered was left hanging until they did. Determined to strike either way, Jameson's now restless band of men set out regardless on the night of the 29th of December, 1895, hoping to spur the Outlanders into action once they arrived in the city itself. But the raiding party had been spotted by Boer scouts, and these scouts sent Pretoria a warning that a force of around 600 men were on their way. Jemison thought he'd cut all the lines of communication, especially the Boer ones, but Jemison had cut the wrong lines, and while he had cut his own, as was planned, he had in fact cut a fence's power line rather than the communications line of the Boers, and the Boers reacted accordingly. Initially advancing at a good pace, Jemison was set upon by wary Boer militias, prepared for the conflict for years beforehand, and he eventually surrendered on the 2nd of January, 1896, and he was taken to jail in Pretoria. Even before its failure, the British colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, had travelled to London to wash his hands of the ordeal. Sir Hercules Robinson, Governor-General of the Cape Colony, was ordered to repudiate the actions of Jameson, so as to not appear responsible. The Boer government later handed the prisoners over to Britain for trial, which seems quite nice, admittedly, and the international embarrassment reached newspapers around the world, with varying reports on the nature of the raid, who had supported it, and and what it had been intended to achieve. Perhaps the most famous, or infamous, item to arise from the Jemison raid was the response of Germany, the so-called Kruger Telegram. The Kruger Telegram was seen as a scandalous example of German interference in British affairs. Just when the British pride was damaged, it seemed, Germany was content to kick it again. Kaiser Wilhelm II was the new, relatively young autocrat, whose ascension to the head of Germany's young empire had drastically altered German foreign policy. Bismarck resigned in 1890, and only two years later, while Germany's foreign office and chancellery were in less capable hands, Russia and France formalised an agreement between their states. Despite this move, though, Wilhelm saw little need to restrict or even tone down his policy of interference in British affairs. Wilhelm's decision to send the Kruger telegram was one of the opening salvos in a series of bad diplomatic moves, which seemed to set the tone for future Anglo-German relations. The contents of the telegram were shared with the British public, who were outraged at the moves of the German Kaiser. Kaiser Wilhelm had written in the telegram to Paul Kruger, who was by now president of the Transvaal, on the 3rd of January 1896, which by the way was the day after Jemison surrendered, that... I express to you my sincere congratulations that you and your people, without appealing to the help of friendly powers, have succeeded by your own energetic action against the armed bands which invaded your country as disturbers of the peace, in restoring peace and in maintaining the independence of the country against attack from without. And the Kaiser's subsequent memoirs state that a very real plan was in fact being drawn up against Britain by Russia and France, and that those two requested German aid in making war on Britain. Only when the Kaiser nobly refused, apparently, did the two powers back down. Wilhelm wrote, In February 1900, I received news by telegraph that Russia and France had proposed to Germany to make a joint attack on England, now that she was involved elsewhere, and to cripple her sea traffic. I objected, and ordered that the proposal should be declined. 
since I assumed that Paris and St. Petersburg would present the matter at London in such a way as to make it appear that Berlin had made this proposal to both of them, I immediately telegraphed from Heligoland to Queen Victoria and to the Prince of Wales the facts of the Franco-Russian proposal and its refusal by me. The Queen answered, expressing her hearty thanks, the Prince of Wales with an expression of astonishment. Unlikely, though it may seem that such a plan between Russia and France occurred, Wilhelm's claims actually hold a good bit of water. You see, the Franco-Russian alliance was organising itself to defend its interests in Asia, Africa and Europe. British behaviour was a critical aspect of the Franco-Russian agreement, since by this stage both viewed Britain as their greatest rival. A forgotten aspect of history, indeed, was just how far the British were for making nice with Paris and St. Petersburg. We should bear in mind that Britain was in the midst of what would be deemed splendid isolation by this point, but what this really meant was they were all alone and had a good number of enemies. So London favoured a relationship with the French and Russians no more than it favoured one with Germany. Actually, it favoured one with Germany far more than Russia and France. It's important to keep this in mind because it prevents us getting too far ahead of ourselves, as I did in the original take of this episode and claiming, oh, this telegram was merely the first in a series of insults which led the Germans to be on opposite sides to the British come 1914, etc. Obviously, such a presentation of events obscures the fact that by this point in history, British policymakers believed a British alliance was much more likely to be found in Berlin, owing to the lack of grounds the two powers had for conflict. It thus stung all the more to see Germany behave in such an inflammatory and interfering way a few years before this, and the subsequent reaction of the public and press testified to this sense of a wounding having taken place. The Times newspaper, ever calm in times of crisis, noted in its January 4th edition that England will concede nothing to menaces and will not lie down under insult. German shop windows were broken and German nationals were harassed in the streets. The British public were as outraged as the British cabinet was confused that the Kaiser would apparently provoke British indignation without proper cause. But Kaiser Wilhelm insisted that no harm was meant by the telegram. In a letter to his grandmother, Queen Victoria, in February of 1896, he noted that never was the telegram intended as a step against England or your government. But the resentment was there in the public circles, who felt that Germany had interfered in the British sphere of influence and they were incensed when the Kaiser had alluded to the great strain involved in preventing the Germans' military involvement in the small skirmish, as if he was like holding the entire German army back by his own sense of restraint. For the British government, it had shown them that the population was not adverse to the idea of, perhaps, one day combating the growing power of Germany, an idea which would of course appeal to France. Though trade and pleasant, though cool relations, continued after this event, The Kruger telegram is often seen as the first step towards war between the two powers, and those who do not know better, like yours truly, may have represented it to you like this in the past. While it is important to keep these events in context, it'd be wrong to say it didn't ruffle some feathers high up in each country. Certainly the next time Britain was given something by Germany to really complain about, it was because of the threat she was posing to them in warships rather than words. As late as March 1897, Kaiser Wilhelm was still occupied with the prospect of coming to the aid of the Boers in the event of a war with Britain. It was the work of Foreign Minister Friedrich von Holstein and the Chancellor Hohenlohe, 
who endeavored to change his mind. German foreign policy lived in fear of a two-front war, and war with Britain was expected to be practically unwinnable, certainly until Germany could at least partly challenge Britain's domination of the seas. Keith Wilson explains this, Since it is only an about-turn that heads out of a cul-de-sac, Holstein sought to achieve nothing less than a complete turnaround in German foreign policy with respect to the Boer states. What he envisioned was a German foreign policy free from the constraints arising from the hostility between Britain and Russia, which he deemed to be unending. Differences with one of these powers always pushed the Reich over to the other side, whereas real independence could only stem from good relationships with both sides. To put it in perspective, we should remember that the Kaiser and most of his ministers in Germany thought it far more likely that a war would erupt between Britain and Russia and likely draw in France. I mean, it had happened with the Crimean War in the 1850s, and war had nearly broken out between Russia and Britain during the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, so there was grounds for this belief. At the same time, the German government was correct, for as Anglo-Russian hostility would remain a staple fact of world affairs for another decade. I am getting sidetracked, I recognise it, but it's important to keep it in mind, because once Germany and Britain sign a treaty in 1898 confirming each other's commitment to uphold the balance of power in Africa, and Germany in the process accepts Britain's sphere of influence in South Africa, it looked more possible than ever that an alliance between the two may occur in the near future. In response to the sudden turnaround in German policy, the Boers began to shift their allegiance to France, perhaps hoping to gain a sympathetic ear in Paris, just as German foreign policy became warmer towards Britain. A series of offers would in time be made for an Anglo-German alliance, which we don't have time to cover here. Russian diplomacy, in the meantime, was embarking on a curious experiment of its own. We recently alluded to Wilhelm's belief that France and Russia were planning to strike against Britain, And indeed, in the original take for this episode, I claimed that such statements made by the Kaiser were baseless and ridiculous. The benefit of doing this five years later is that I can break out content, which I'd otherwise never get a chance to share or didn't really know how to read at the time. I didn't know how to read, but you know what I mean. I didn't look up the actual articles because I thought I knew it all already. For the record, in future installments of Britain Goes to War, we will go into this aspect of the pre-Boer War years, in more detail, but I think it's pretty safe to establish the point here that Russian Foreign Minister Count Mikhail Nikolaevich Muraviev, also known as Muraviev, and more famous for his activism alongside Tsar Nicholas II and pushing for the 1899 Hague Peace Conference, of all things, was by the late 1890s testing the diplomatic waters with a view towards creating an anti-British league out of the Boer situation. It was Russia, in other words, contrary to the historical record which always paints Germany as the boogeyman in this case, and it certainly wasn't the irresponsible or insensitive Wilhelm, that sought to take Britain down a peg when she was at her most vulnerable. Of course this would make sense, knowing what we know about the Anglo-Russian rivalry, but it's still fascinating to see how wrong I could get things five years ago, so sorry about that. Word got out about Count Moravia's schemes when he tried to create a league with France, Russia and Germany involved, since it's kind of hard to keep everyone quiet in a league that size. Wilhelm passed the offer to the British Foreign Office with the telling phrase, I have refused, in English, attached. Its presence is attested to in both the private papers of Lord Salisbury, then the Prime Minister, and of Queen Victoria's personal papers. 
Wilhelm clearly wanted no part of the scheme, which, by autumn 1899, the Russian foreign minister tried to set in motion. Moraviev then approached the Spanish of all people about joining it in place of Berlin. Probably because the Spanish queen was a Habsburg, her agents passed the information back to the other Habsburgs in Vienna, who then passed it to their British colleagues. The Austrians and Germans, in other words, were far more eager to look after the British than the future alliance partners that the British chose. This fact is what led historian Edward T. Corp, author of the article Sir Charles Harding and the Question of Intervention in the Boer War, an episode in the rise of anti-German feeling in the British Foreign Office, and my source for the aforementioned revelations, to note that, it's a bit of a long quote, but it's well worth it, trust me, so long as the relations between England and Russia remained bad, it made no particular difference that Moraviev had proposed that the continental powers should intervene against the British in the Boer War. The incident only began to acquire significance when, with Anglo-German relations steadily deteriorating, the British government began to reorientate its foreign policy towards France and Russia. At that point, the memory of what had taken place in the winter of 1899-1900 to became at best an embarrassment and at worst an obstacle to an Anglo-Russian rapprochement. The anti-Germans in the Foreign Office were naturally eager to accept any statements from Russian and French sources denying that Moraviev had ever made his proposals for intervention, particularly if, by implication, the responsibility for making such proposals could actually be laid at the door of the German government. This became even more... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Were the case when the Liberals came into office in December 1905, just before the opening of the Al Jazeera's conference. The anti-Germans were determined to do everything they could to persuade Sir Edward Grey to support the French against the Germans. The question of intervention in the Boer War was used to convince the new Foreign Secretary of the devious and hostile presence of Germany, in contrast to the responsible and friendly policy of France and her ally in Russia. Thus the incredible and fascinating fix was apparently in. Moraviev was recast as the gentle soul who merely organised a peace conference, while the Germans were demonised and Wilhelm pilloried by historians for attempting to take advantage of Britain in its time of peril. The truth, as it turns out, couldn't have been further from the history we've been given. Returning to the situation in South Africa, though, and following the Jemison raid, Matters had begun to become untenable in both the Boer republics and in Britain itself. The Boers wanted proper full independence and they wanted Britain to rescind its claims to Boer lands. Britain wanted to fully annex the territory and remove the potential threat that the Boers posed to British prestige, both locally and internationally. The Transvaal was also going through a recession, we all know what that's like. This was brought on by the slowly drying up sources of gold in the overworked mines. This affected British trade and commerce in the surrounding areas, even if Britain didn't want to admit it. The idea was that these economic problems could be solved if only the Transvaal and the Orange Free State were absorbed into a larger South African federation, which would kill two birds with one stone. In this case, the birds were first Boer nationalism, and all that entailed, and then the economic problems in the Boer states, which were adversely affecting South Africa as a whole. The stone was military force, and Britain was just as eager to use it in this case as the Boers appeared to be. There was also the often forgotten factor of the mining capitalists who had invested large sums in the construction of the gold mines in the Transvaal, and who were not seeing as large a return on their investment as they were used to. The extra costs involved in transporting, controlling and maintaining their mining enterprises in the Transvaal were far greater than they would have been if under British common laws of trade. Keith Wilson provides the narrative once again, when he writes, For many mining capitalists, the key thing was that the Transvaal should modernise to the benefit of mining industry. How that modernisation came about, and whether it occurred inside or outside the empire of Britain, were entirely secondary issues. Some mining capitalists could conclude, however, that a united South Africa would better suit their interests. By the late 1890s, they were becoming worried that Not only were the additional costs arising from the Transvaal's protectionists and monopolistic tendencies, but also that the general inefficiency of the Transvaal state, the unpredictability of its policies and politics, and the threat of arbitrarily high and ruinous new taxes, presented a dark future. So the money and powerful people with money was another factor contributing to the growing number of voices who advocated change in the land. But the war was a long time coming either way. 
The First Boer War had left the Boers feeling that they could have won more decisively, while the British had been left utterly embarrassed and they wanted a measure of revenge. Britain would be viewed as weak on the world stage if it couldn't solve its colonial problems, so for that reason Britain also felt that it had to defeat the Boers, and convincingly, I might add, too. The Oitlanders soon became an issue too. While the Jemison raid had been supposedly launched for their benefit, it wasn't until the years following it that the British began to see the importance of supporting the Oitlanders by diplomatic and political means. Britain still believed that if the Oitlanders could form a political party, its large size would defeat the smaller Boer political agendas, and that this new Oitlander government would be far more favourable to British demands, and may even bow to British requests of a united South African state. But the Boers recognised this fact too, and realised that a represented Oitlander population meant the end of the Boer-dominated state. Thus, Paul Kruger, the seemingly permanent president of the Transvaal, strictly ordered the prevention of any formation of Oitlander political movements, and prohibited the Oitlanders from voting at all. Britain sought to capitalise on the potential resentment of the Oitlanders, but this time they did not send a raid. They didn't have to. Paul Kruger, having been pushed to breaking point by 1899 by the numerous demands of the British, ordered that the British withdraw all personnel within 48 hours. That demand was ridiculous, and Paul Kruger probably knew it was, but when Joseph Chamberlain had demanded full voting rights and representation for the Oitlanders in September 1899, Kruger just couldn't take it anymore. The date was the 9th of October 1899, and as Britain watched the ultimatum expire, it saw its failed diplomacy explode into a war which would eventually spell the end of an era and the Boer states. The Boers initially held all the cards, since their forces had been preparing for a war like this for some time. Still though, there was at least some shock and apprehension present in the minds of the Boers, most notably in a General Van Villione, whose memoirs, My Reminiscences of the Anglo-Boer War, formed an invaluable primary source for me and anyone else looking into the Boer War and wanting to see it again from another perspective. Villione writes on the outbreak of the war, The messenger came to me with a note and whispered, A message from General Joubert, sir. It is urgent, and the general says it requires your immediate attention. I broke the seal of the envelope with some trepidation. I guessed its contents, and a few of my colleagues of the chamber hung over me, almost speechless with excitement, whispering curiously, Young, is this food? Is it correct? Is it war? Everyone knew, of course, that we were in for a supreme crisis, that the relations between Great Britain and our Republic had been strained to the breaking point, that bitter diplomatic notes had been passed between the two governments for months past, and that a collision, an armed collision, was sooner or later inevitable. When General Villone confronted General Joubert with question of who had officially fired the first shot, he recorded his superior's reply later on, writing, Look here, there is as of yet no declaration of war and hostilities have not yet commenced. You and my other officers should have understood that very clearly because the differences between our two countries could still be settled peacefully. We are only going to occupy our frontiers because England's attitude is extremely provocative. And if England see that we are serious about defending our borders and that we do not fear their threats, she will perhaps be wise in time and reconsider her situation. We also want to place ourselves in a position to prevent and quell a repetition of the Jemison raid, 
with more force than we exerted in 1896. More force is certainly what they did exert, because the Boers poured into the British-owned territories and mounted preemptive strikes into British-held territory in Natal and the Cape Colony, besieging the British garrisons of Ladysmith, Mafeking and Kimberley. The Boers then won a series of tactical victories at Colenso, Megers Fontaine and Spionkop against a failed British counter-offensive to relieve the sieges. But then the British began to move troops into South Africa and with real numbers. Under the command of Frederick Roberts, the British were able to relieve the sieges successfully, and unlike the British strategy in the First War, the British moved with real purpose and acted like a professional force. But then the conflict began to degenerate into the kind of guerrilla war that the Boers exceeded at. They cut down telephone wires, launched daring surprise raids in the darkness, and seized British supply dumps at the railway stations, after blowing those railway stations to bits. The Boers were often forced to steal the British supplies, since the British army, now under the command of Herbert Kitchener, whose name may ring a bell, had decided that a scorched earth policy was the best course of action, and the British forces were instructed to burn everything owned by the Boers, and herd the Boer civilians into concentration camps. The British focused on isolating the Boer commandos from any support they could gain. The scorched earth policy was part of this strategy, and new structures called blockhouses, which Sean and I talk about in the talk episode, were built near key local installations that would otherwise serve as targets for the wily Boers. The blockhouses housed 8-10 to ten soldiers and took about 3 months to build, requiring much African labour to do so. It was an effective barrier to the Boers though, they were highly successful and eventually 8,000 would be built in total. They almost resembled miniature fortresses, and the blockhouses enabled the British to appear as though they had eyes everywhere, which was demoralising for both the Boer civilians and militias. It soon became clear to the Boers that this was a war they could not win. The British were pouring unbelievable amounts of men and money into South Africa to combat the just 30,000 or so Boers. When it became clear in early 1900 that the British cavalry regiments were suffering, the decision to bring in soldiers from across the empire was made. Mounted soldiers arrived from Australia and New Zealand, and their experience on the mount and the weight of numbers soon began to tell. During this time, Christian de Vett began to make a name for himself as the primary thorn in the side of the British forces. As a commander of the Boer forces, he led many a successful raid against the British, despite the new tactics. Rarely suffering any notable defeats, he was a source of inspiration to the demoralised and harassed Boer militias, who were at pains to achieve some kind of military success against their enemy. Between September 1901 and March 1902, the British in western Transvaal were struggling to achieve success themselves. General Coups de Ray led the Boers to some blinding victories during this time, most notably at the Battle of Tuibosh, where the British officer in command was captured by de Ray's forces. The war across the South African states was by no means one-sided, as British victories in one area were often drowned out by Boer successes in another, and vice versa. But it was the British reaction to this situation, the massive movement of soldiers into the combat zone from across the globe, and the sheer level of resources that the British brought to bear on the Boers, which really set the tone for the conflict, and demonstrated to Europe and Britain's colonial empire that the British government and its forces meant business. There was to be no repeat of the previous failures in Africa, Victory would be achieved no matter what the cost, in men, money or materials. 
The last battle of the Boer War occurred on the 11th of April 1902 in the western Transvaal in the Battle of Royval, where Boer commandos charged across a valley and attacked a British position and met their end at the hands of British guns who were firing themselves from entrenched emplacements in their blockhouses and suffered few casualties. It was a battle in stark contrast to the previous encounters of the war and the mass cavalry charge of the Boers almost seemed out of place and characteristic but it nonetheless happened and the resulting British victory led to eventual peace between the two sides. Its success was celebrated back home as the British people rejoiced at the news of the end of the war. But our good history friend, General Ben Villone, reminds us of the real cost and puts the war into context, the human context, when he stated, Two promising and prosperous republics wrecked, their fur homesteads destroyed, their people in mourning, and thousands of innocent women and children the victims of this cruel war. There is scarcely an African family without an unhealable wound. Peace talks began on the 19th of May 1902 in Pretoria. By this stage, the British had spent almost £200 million and they had sent nearly half a million soldiers to fight. Fifty years earlier in the Crimea, the British had actually sent less soldiers to fight a major war against Russia. But it was clear here that the British viewed this venture with far more importance than any previous war and maybe colonial war in its history. And in this case, they learned the lesson on how to fight against an enemy which was well hidden and on its home turf. With the world watching to see how Britain would react after years of fighting its own people in a miserable, thankless sphere of its empire, the Treaty of Vereeniging was signed by both sides on the 31st of May 1902, ending Britain's most costly war since the Napoleonic era. What emerged on the other side was a British empire battered and bruised, but unmistakably different. The Grandmother of Europe died on Tuesday, the 22nd of January 1901 at half past six in the evening, at the age of 81. Her life produced 42 grandchildren, of which the Kaiser of Germany, Queen Sophia of Spain, Harold V of Norway, Gustav XVI of Sweden, and Marguerite II of Denmark could claim ancestry. Her rule as Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and Empress of India, encompassed 63 years and 7 months and came to be known as the Victorian Era. In her name were settlements around the world created, such as the Queenland and Victoria Territories in Australia, the Victoria Falls, Victoria as the capital of British Columbia, and the Greatest Lake in Africa. In her honour was the Victoria Cross created, still the highest military rank in the UK today. Victoria Today... Victoria Today, an alternative to Russia today, Victoria Day is celebrated in Canada and parts of Scotland. She represented Britain in an age when its influence around the world exceeded that of any other state in history. But now, she was dead. Her death meant the end of an old era and an old century. The 19th had been dominated by the memory of France and Napoleon, of rifles and bayonets and great British statesmen. The 20th was bound to be a whole lot different. All over Europe, the signs were abound that Britain had come out of the Boer War and landed in a still more hostile world. And that's the end of the podcast. I know, once again I missed out a good bit, even doing it five years later. I still completely skipped the issue of concentration camps and I pretty much glossed over the entire war's campaign. Trust me, I will cover most of these things in the talk episode that you must know is coming because it came five years ago. 
but I'd like to think I give you an interesting diplomatic perspective that you wouldn't have gotten had you simply read an account of the Borough Wars campaigns, which, let's be honest, you could really do anywhere. So yeah, I'm pretty happy with the way this went. And I'm glad that I did it again, because much like what happened with the First World War, I was able to change my mind. Who knew that Wilhelm II was telling the truth all along, and that it was really the sneaky Russians and French who were planning the war? There you go, that's something you can tell your friends, because, as you know, they all care, that it was in fact the Russians and the French who were plotting against the British during the Boer War, not the Germans. How about that? Alright guys, I'm going to take my leave now. My name is Zach, you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Boer War. Thanks very much for listening, and remember if you'd like to support, become a patron of the podcast, where you can get access to the members' feed and exclusive content, all that juicy stuff, as well as loads of other goodies that I will always be developing and sending towards you in my own personal postage service. I do it because I love you guys and because I love podcasting, And, critically, I love history. So yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Let's try that again. So yeah, thanks for listening, guys. And I'll see you all, quite obviously, very soon. I feel if I drink any more coffee, I think I'm going to explode. Let's see what happens. (laughs) How much coffee is too much? I think if you're asking that question, you probably have had too much already. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.